Ronaso. So in terms of nighttime dream yoga practice, the visualizations there at the throat chakra, whether a simple one like simply a bindu of light, a little orb of light, or Padmasambhava, or your yidam. For many people, if you find it rather difficult to visualize at all, then the sheer act of visualizing anything keeps them awake. That's a bit of a problem. You can't fall asleep, then you can't have nighttime dream yoga. <clears throat> so Namke Noburamache, who I've never met, but he certainly has a uh, very well-known, very highly respected by many, many people. He wrote a book on dream yoga and read it many years ago, but what I recall, and I know quite a number of his students, uh, is that for his instruction, knowing he's lived in the West for a long time, has had you know, teaching for decades, uh, his suggestion for his Western students in terms of the way to fall asleep would be to adopt the practice of taking the mind as a path or settling the mind in its natural state. And for all the obvious reasons, I think I don't really need to re reiterate much, right? It's basically the same practice. One you're awake, the other one you're asleep. But if that doesn't keep you awake, and for some people it will, just the sheer fact that you are attending to this arena, space, domain of the mind, and stuff is happening. And every time some stuff happens, an image, a reflection, an emotion, what have you, then it arouses, and if your attention is quite clear, every time something comes up, it may keep on arousing you, and then therefore preventing you from getting to sleep. Uh, but there are people, I've met some of you, uh, who find it quite easy to fall asleep, in which case you are some of the fortunate ones. Because if you do find it generally easy to fall asleep, then you may as well try that. You know, fall asleep in the supine position, or, or the sleeping lying position. I mean, that's the optimal one. And then as you're falling asleep, settle the mind in a natural state. And there you are, your attention is focused on exactly that domain of experience in which the dreams will eventually arise. Right? And you'll slip into a natural samadhi. You know, because just by the pro process of falling asleep, as you well know, the, your senses gradually converge in upon mental awareness, the activities of the mind gradually subside. Most likely, you'll slip right into the substrate, uh, but you may do so lucidly. Right? But now, so enough of that, but that was a suggestion. Uh, for those people who find it harder to fall asleep, I would just go back to mindfulness of breathing. First of all, get a good night's sleep, and then anything after that. Right? But there's this middle way, and it's the perfect segue to the next phase, of these dream yoga, nighttime dream yoga teachings, and you've probably peeked ahead, many of you, uh, this is now really going for the gold, so to speak. It's going for realization of rikpa by way of deep sleep. So I'll talk about that a little bit later when we actually return to the text. But what I'd like to do now is to have a silent session and to just invite you now to custom make, custom make your own session. Uh, there's really, I don't know what more I really have to share with you in terms of shamatha methods. You know, I think we pretty well covered it over the last six weeks. Uh, but what I would suggest here for this session is that you start out with mindfulness of breathing. Uh, subtle body, speech, and mind, of course. Then mindfulness of breathing. The general way that I would recommend, but if you find another way more effective, do that. You know, whatever works. The general way, unless you have a special predilection for full body awareness or rise and fall of the abdomen, or the sensations at the, at, the, at the nostrils. If you have a strong tendency for one of those, great, go for it. But if not, uh, or if you feel quite even about it, then what I would suggest is this practice, kind of this, what I'm calling the Dzogchen practice, the Dzogchen approach to mindfulness of breathing, where you keep your awareness still, as much as you can. You keep your awareness still, and not really visualizing the body, not really looking at the body, attending to a part of the body, roaming about, looking for sensations in the body, but I'm afraid I'm being a bit repetitive here, but maybe it's still helpful. Keep your awareness still, and just with that clarity, that still clarity, uh, if you're not already at stage eight or nine on the, on the practice of shamatha, you're probably still aware of your body, which means in a very translucent way, not a chunky way, not a material or substantial way. Just be aware of the space, the somatic space, right? And within that space, you're bound to be aware of these fluctuations in the field, the undulations in the field. And these undulations correspond, of course, to in-breath, out-breath. Right? So simply be aware of them. 
So what I would suggest is whether for the first three minutes, roughly the first half of the session, just soothe, ground. We can always do more of that. We can always get more calm, more at ease, all the way up to Buddhahood. Uh, we can always get more at ease. And so start there. And then either making a clear shift or just gradually drawing in. You may do this abruptly with a discontinuity or just incrementally. Just gradually withdraw your awareness from any explicit awareness or directed awareness to that field, to the sensations of the in and out breath, and just let your awareness converge in upon itself. Right? Now, there are people for whom, when they're just doing this straight practice of awareness of awareness, they start feeling a bit claustrophobic, a bit tight, a bit hyper, a bit strung out, a bit tense. And if there's any of that coming up, you really don't want to make that a habit. Right? Bad habit. And so, if you'd like to reintroduce that sense of spaciousness and ease, then I would suggest, what am I going to say, Gajela? Yeah, I would say that. I would say something else. What, what, what would that be, Natu? She has it, yeah. Merge mind with space. Merge mind with space. It is, after all, the culmination of Shamatu without a sign. And I've, I've been teaching it ever since I did my six-month retreat. Was it a year ago? A year and a half ago now. Um, and quite a number of people who had already been trained in the Shamatu without a sign found this is completely smooth with that. It's not some other practice. But it gives that sense of spaciousness, that openness, that looseness. So no contraction, no tightening up or condensation kind of see. That is that total release into space, and in that release, you're still ever-present with the sheer luminosity of awareness, that luminosity of awareness pervades space, such that where you're going, of course, is simply the non-dual, undifferentiated experience of just open expanse without object, the space of the mind, and simultaneously, what, Ginny? What simultaneously with just total spaciousness? Just go ahead and guess. If you don't guess, no, no big deal. You don't remember? No problem. What would you say, Beatrice? Simultaneous with the sense of space, what else are you experiencing? And if you don't know, just say, don't know, big deal. Don't know, okay. Um, Kim? Relaxation for sure, but I'm looking for, I'm fishing. I'm fishing, yes. Awareness, definitely. What's that? Fusion, yes. Awareness, definitely. I'm fishing for one more word. Clarity, luminosity, exactly. Yeah. So, if, so all of those are right. Definitely awareness, definitely a sense of ease, definitely a sense of spaciousness. But if you go to the classic literature on this, oh, it's certon, certon yarme. It's the indivisibility of luminosity and emptiness. Certon comes up in Mahamudra everywhere, Dzogchen everywhere. The other one that we can't kind of call up, but it will come sooner or later, it's quite nice. Oh, that's quite nice. Big smile on Natu's face. She speaks Tibetan. Indivisibility of bliss and emptiness. Now you can't just say, okay, I want my bliss now. You know, that it doesn't tend to come on demand. When it comes, it comes. But the sense of clarity, you don't have to wait for that. Just that clarity, that transparency, the luminosity of your awareness. That's not, not something to wait for. I mean, it's just like, as I'm gazing over at Isabel, she's wearing these podcast people. A lot of color here. I mean, those, those are pretty intense slacks there. <laughs> you know, but just lovely colors, bright colors, Mexican colors. I like it. You know, bright, lively, fresh, very pleasant. And so where is all that, com where is all that color coming from, that brightness, that lightness, that vividness? From my awareness. <laughs> you thought it was from your clothes. Uh -uh, it's mine. <laughs> you just provided fabric. But the clarity, the luminosity, the brightness of the colors, of course, that's coming from anybody who looks in that direction. The clarity, the brightness, that's not coming from our fabric, not coming from light waves or photons, right? Brightness is coming from your own awareness. So you don't have to look someplace special. Wherever you see the vividness, the appearances arising, all of these are expressions of the luminosity of your own awareness. So that's not something you have to wait for. So in this practice, indivisibility. Indivisibility, first of all, of just that sense of open, ex objectless expanse. That is, you're not coming out someplace and parking. You're just whoosh, 
releasing into an openness without object, without thought. So it's releasing into an absence of thought. Right? Absence of any kind of object, including thoughts. Absence of that. But then you're not spacing out, you're not falling into a void, you're not falling into an abyss or a black hole. Because as you release into that, what's left is the sheer clarity, the luminosity, the brightness of your own awareness. And that awareness permeates that open space. Okay? So that you can call up. You shouldn't have to wait for that. And then slowly, slowly, really it's coming out of that luminosity, comes the bliss. The bliss comes from the luminosity. But be patient with that one. It comes, it comes. Doesn't come, well, be satisfied. Emptiness and luminosity, that's not bad. Okay? Good. So now we'll have a silent session. Yeah? Good. Good, good. So please find a comfortable position. Very important. Let the, for the recording, I'll let the, the chime go, and then I'll turn this off, okay? Hola, <coughs> so. So for a very, very brief review of what we've just finished, that was really focusing, of course, on nighttime dream yoga while you're dreaming. And you see the culmination of that is where you use the power of your imagination, which is now uh, really vivid and really focused because you're dreaming. You don't have to just visualize it, which is probably rather nebulous and unstable during the daytime, unless you have very good samadhi. But in that dream state, when you're lucid, then they call it ne gyurwa. I think it's ne gyurwa. You shift your location. So wherever you, wherever you may be, some mundane location. But then by the power of your imagination, you shift your location, and there you are in some pure land. You know? Now, are you actually in a pure land? Probably not. You're, this is all the play of, this is all coming out of your substrate, right? So whatever you, whether you visualize Santa Claus or Padmasambhava or your mother or your dog, um, you know, if you're still a relatively ordinary practitioner, then these are all the free play, the free play, the creations, the effulgences of your substrate, right? Play of your imagination. So if Padmasambhava appears to you in your dream, don't count on it that it's actually Padmasambhava. Most likely it's an appearance of Padmasambhava. And who knows how he'll be behave? You know, you can't. There's no guarantee that if Padmas, the appearance of Padmasambhava gives you instructions during your dream that it's actually teachings of Padmasambhava. It might more likely be just what you imagine Padmasambhava would say. Like I've sometimes given the example of, you know, I, I, would, really, I would really love to be able to meet Einstein. I've read, you know, read his, a number of his biographies. And I really, I just sit down with him. Well, if, if you're in a lucid dream, you know, you can conjure up his home. I've actually been to his home in Bern, so I could, I could remember it. Oh, yeah, I remember I, where, where Albert lives, you know? And I could go there in a lucid dream. I could find my, I could find my way to Bern, I'm sure. I've been there a number of times. And that, 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 uh, the street on which your house is, I remember it's on the right-hand side of the street, going that way. And it's up on the second floor, as I recall. And uh, so I could visit there, and I could visit there with a strong expectation he's probably home and knock on, his ha- uh, knock on his door, and lo and behold, this guy with a funny hairdo, you know, he might really, if he really wanted to please me, he would go... You've seen that photo, yeah? It's quite famous. So it just, you know, it kind of tickled me, give me a little bit of a kick, tick his tongue out, and said, I've been expecting you. Come on in, Alan. But he would say, I, now can I do German? I've been expecting you. Come in, Alan or something like that, he would speak in a German accent. Or maybe my German is not entirely gone. Uh, he might even say in an American German, you know, welcome, I've been expecting you. 
And then when we sit down, he'll say the kind of wise things that I would imagine he might say. And that's pretty much it. But will he give me a lecture on general relativity? Don't think so. I mean, the math. I mean, the general principles I've understood. But the math, please explain to me the Riemannian field equations. I haven't quite gotten them. Yeah, maybe not now. I think some tea would be good. <laughs> you know, he'll dodge the bullet, you know, because there's no way it's not in my substrate. So I'm going to be fishing for it. Please tell me about the field equations of Riemannian, you know, Riemannian space. And um, it's not going to happen. So if it's not going to happen, if Einstein's not going to really explain to me the mathematics behind the general relativity theory, Padmasambhava is probably not going to explain to you the subtleties of Dzogchen either, that you've not yet fathomed. Now, does that happen? Sure, it does. Sure it does. Dujumlingba had multiple, multiple visions of Padmasambhava. Tsongaba of Manjushri. And the list goes on and on, where it's actually an encounter. You know, actually an encounter. But for where we are in, in our practice now, if such an appearance of a Padmasambhava or a Buddha or Dalai Lama, for that matter, appears, then just assume that's an appearance from my substrate. And the teaching might be good, but be careful. You know, it may not be good. Um, and likewise, if you find yourself in your vision of going to a pure land, like, you know, like the arrow shot by a strong archer, if you find yourself in a pure land, which, you know, deliberately set up in your practice of dream yoga, very good. Are you actually in a dream in a pure land? Probably not, but you're in your best facsimile. You're basically doing what you do in the waking state, which is already suggested to do, but you're doing it a lot better because you're in this deep samadhi with all of your five physical senses withdrawn, and then it's a rehearsal. And do that if you can, you know, when you get to that point in your practice. If you do that repeatedly, repeatedly, coming back to lucidity, coming back to visualizing yourself, sending off to abhirati or sukhavati or what have you, then you see what the preparation is all about. It's perfectly obvious. Then you have those propensities, and so when you actually are dead and you're actually in the bardo, you become lucid in the bardo, and then you think, now's the time. And then you visualize a pure realm, and then you actually go to a pure realm. That would be a really good idea. Really good idea. Save yourself a lot of grief. So, so that's what that was for. That's pretty much where it culminated. Pretty much where it culminated. And before that, do pure vision as much as you can. But know that it's basically like your pure, any pure vision, stage of generation practice you do during the waking state. But it's a lot better. right? So relatively speaking, within kind of just ordinary mind, so we have our coarse day, uh, daytime consciousness, and then we have dreaming consciousness, which is said to be relatively subtle, and then the consciousness of deep sleep, and that's said to be subtlest, within this little domain. Obviously, they're more subtle than that. But within this domain of kind of ordinary mind, we just cycle through these three modes of consciousness, corresponding to the forehead chakra, throat chakra, heart chakra. And this is coarse, this is medium, and this is very subtle. Coarse, subtle, and very subtle. You know? And what subtle means here is powerful, high potential high potential. So if you're lucid in the dream, then whatever you visualize is going to be much more powerful, much clearer, sharper, and so forth. So that's a big advantage. So we finished with that. That was all a little recap. But now we're finished with that. And now we're going into that third mode of consciousness that we experience on a regular basis. And that is into dreamless sleep. And then how do you transmute that? How do you use that as a path to liberation. And here we are on page 161, and he's about to explain. So I, I just read the first line, and I think, oh, I wish we had a contemplative observatory to start doing this right now. So he says, so, so what's the title? Stabilizing the transitional process of dreaming and instructions on transforming the dream state into the clear light. So shifting from the dream state into the clear light. This is Rikpa, of course and training in the natural liberation of confusion. Bear in mind, this natural liberation, it's rangdul. It's a term I've used a number of times from the Tibetan. Rangdul means just self-release, this natural release. Okay, Like when you're practicing settling the mind in this natural state, and you're observing, let's say, thoughts of anger coming up, without having to antidote them, remedy them. Oh, I have to practice loving kindness. I have to practice patience. I have to think I have to do something. All of those are fine. That's applying an antidote. But the other way, the method of settling the mind, its natural state, 
simply be present with them. And then they rando, they release themselves. Much simpler, you know. And so this is the rando, the natural release, the self-release or liberation of confusion. So now for the instruction, for one month, stay in strict retreat and stay in the shade. Interesting. So stay in the shade. Eat light and nutritious food and have massages and so on. Massages, jacuzzi, chocolate, whatever it gives you, know, raises dop- dopamine levels, give you a kind of that sense of being really much at ease. Yeah? Nice. And then, until the 15th day of the month. So the 15th day of the month, of course, in the lunar calendar is full moon. So as the moon is waxing, until the 15th day of the moon, burn an oil lamp that lasts the whole night. So I've often said, fall asleep and keep the light on. What I mean by that, of course, is keep this light on. Keep, on, keep the light on of your own awareness. Keep that, and so don't let it be obscured by dullness and just go you know, unconscious. But now he's suggesting literally fall asleep with the light on. Okay? Butter lamp, kerosene lamp, or we have all kinds of things nowadays. So with an oil, so burn an oil lamp that lasts the whole night. So some lightness in the room. Right? Make Ganachakra offerings to your gurus. So Ganachakra again is the Sanskrit for tzok. And I understand, Elizabeth, it's true. Is it uh, today is Wednesday? Is it Friday that tzok is going to be offered? Is that correct? Yeah. And people are, are welcome to come. Yeah. Good. And so anybody who would like to, if you've not, if you've participated in tzok. You have a Tsok master here. Uh, uh, Natu is very experienced doing that. And so that's very good. And I think other people are very much involved. Uh, I know Gache and so forth. And Elizabeth. Uh, but anybody else who would like to participate, you're very welcome to do so, if you'd like to have just the experience. It comes up a lot, as you see, and very widely practiced in Tibetan Buddhism. And it's fun. It has a celebratory quality when it's done pro- correctly. And I'm sure Natu will. It's not somber and heavy. Some rituals are, but this one isn't. This is light. It's really in the mode of celebration. And then when you finish, then it's party time. Keep it subdued, though. You know, subdued party time. Uh, just a little munching, little yummy things. Don't get carried away. <laughs> Sometimes in the Nyingma tradition, they get a bit carried away, I have to tell you. They bring out the wine. They bring out the, you know, they bring out the booze. And it's real party time, but, you know... I've got too much galupa blood in me. <laughs> we don't look kindly on that kind of thing. You know, a bit more serious. This is, this is the galupa's notion of having a, have, having a swig. <laughs> a little drop on the tongue. Oh. <laughs> so that's in two days. That's on Friday. I think you'll enjoy it if you try it out. And that's probably Friday... Oh, there might be one more talk before we leave. No, there's last one. Oh, then there's your one, one chance. One chance. Good. It's good to know it with somebody who really knows how to do it. I'm sure Agachi also really knows how to do it. I'm sure we've done it many times. What? At least, but not too for sure. Very good. But that's Gana Chakra. So make Gana Chakra offerings to your lamas, your yidam, or... And I'm going to be changing this, uh, updating this translation as I read it. So to your gurus, to your personal deity... And to the Takinis. Takinis are all feminine manifestations of enlightened beings, the skygoers, skywalkers, and set out a torma ritual offering marked with flesh. So sometimes, again, a little bit, even just symbolic, a bit of meat is part of the practice, as it is clearly here. Have an experienced companion with you. So we see we're going into some kind of special domain here, some special preparation. You see, and Rinpoche's lovely commentary. So, and quiescence, just by the way, you probably figured it out quiescence is, now I just keep it with shamatha. But for a long time I was translating shamatha as quiescence. Well, that's what it is, it's shamatha. So now for the main practice, then for the main practice. At the beginning, cultivate bodhicitta. Thinking, may all sentient beings throughout space achieve perfect Buddhahood. So once again, there's the lofty, there's the vision like when we're practicing loving-kindness practice. What's your vision? What's your vision? What comes to mind when you think of your own flourishing? What would truly bring you happiness? In the, in the purest sense, what is your heart's desire? 
and that, and that you know, it doesn't quite go without saying, but some people's heart's desire is just to have a lot of sex or have a new sports car or more money. Okay, well, that's, we're not wishing them for that because there's no guarantee it will bring many happiness at all. So when you say, when, when I'm using that term, I, it's a nice phrase, heart's desire, but whenever I'm, whenever I'm using that term, I'm never referring to just what do you want samsarically. If I really felt that would bring people genuine happiness and lead them to enlightenment, then sure. You know. uh, for those 85 people, I just thought about it, those 85 people. I just thought, what if they all became monks? I, we invite them, you know, corral them, make them all come and have a dharma talk, receive a dharma talk, and say, you know, the people should all become monks and nuns. If there are any women among you, I'm not sure there are, among the top 85, but if there are any women, but all you know, men, women, why don't you all become monks and nuns right now and give away everything? Just robes. You can, you can live in Sri Lanka for free and give away everything. And, and we'll try to wave a magic wand so that all their wealth is distributed evenly among the 3.5 billion of the poor people in the world. They'd all have their wealth doubled. Can you imagine that? 3.5 billion people would have their wealth, their assets doubled if 85 people became monks and gave away all their possessions. And then just live simply and happily. I can almost guarantee if they actually did that and truly wanted to do it, they'd be much happier. Because like, I've met a number of very wealthy people. I mean, really wealthy people. Not one. I mean, I haven't met that many. I haven't met 85. But I've met a number of them. Not one struck me as having any lightness, any sense of good cheer, buoyancy, joie de vie, pas de tout. Not there. No. So I think they'd be much happier, actually. So write them a letter. It'd be much better if you took monastic ordination. And give away all your wealth and take two people, two, two, one half of the human population, and double their assets. It'd be amazing. I dream. So, but there it is, having that lofty notion. What's the vision? What's the vision for your own flourishing, for the planet? But now here's a vision. May all sentient beings, there's the vision, there's the loftiest possible vision. May all sentient beings be, achieve, realize, perfect awakening. Good. That's a good vision. Lofty vision. Noble is the highest vision. But then again, like in that little silly thing I said, you know, like, okay, I'm going to write a check for Michael and his wife's foundation, you know. That's very well. But if you don't have the money, then he would say, well, thank, thank you for the offer. I really appreciate it. How are you going to get the money? How are you going to do it? What's your strategy? What's your project? You know? And so that's what we get. Techetu in Tibetan. Techetu. For that purpose, in order to do so, good. That's a nice notion. Give a million dollars. Liberate all sentient beings. But now, in order to do so, what's your strategy? Right? If you don't have one, then it's empty words. Not fooling anybody. But he has a strategy. For that purpose, I shall meditate on the clear light. The natural liberation of delusion on the clear light, which is none other than primordial consciousness, right? Pristine awareness, Buddha nature. The natural liberation of delusion. It's worth pausing there. Because we're in Dzogchen territory. Now we're definitely back in Dzogchen territory, if there was any doubt. The preceding one with this dreaming, much more state regeneration. That whole notion, pure vision, Imagine your own body as the deity's body, your identity, seeing the, the, the guru, then off to a pure land and so forth. Very much stage generation practice. Magnificent, wonderful, practical. But now that we're going into transmuting deep dreamless sleep into the clear light, well, this is now not so much stage regeneration. This might be right back to Dzogchen, right? And so within this context, I think here I will spend a few minutes on something very meaningful, very deep, and not entirely out of reach. Okay. And that is, we're all familiar, I would presume, with what I call the five poisons. The five poisons. So the short list is just three poisons, generic to all of Buddhism. Three poisons. Uh, they come by different translations. Craving, hostility, and delusion. Greed, hatred, delusion, whatever. That's the short list. The three, duksum, three poisons. But very, very often, in the, especially the Vajrayana literature, then you see five poisons coming up. Five poisons. So it's those three, but then two more. And one of these is envy. It's better than, better than jealousy. 
I'm using my words very carefully. And for the following reason, if I'm a jealous husband, if I have a beautiful wife and I'm a jealous husband, then that means that if other men look at her, I don't like it. And I don't want her looking at other men because I'm, you know, I'm very possessive. I'm a jealous husband, right? I want to hold on to what I have. Jealous husband, right? Whereas if somebody else has a really, like a really nice car, I've always wanted to, I never got, you know? Because I said I like dark chocolate instead of milk chocolate, rather than saying I like Porsches instead of Audis, you know? I just had my chance, you know? But in any case, got a lot of dark chocolate and not one Porsche. You know? But no, no, joking aside, let's imagine, and I'm not fixated on Porsches at all, but let's imagine, you know, imagine that I am, you know, now let's play, make believe on that one, and I see somebody else having just the Porsche I've been salivating over for years. What am I? I'm envious of that person's possession. I'm envious. I wish I had your Porsche. You don't deserve that Porsche. I deserve your Porsche. I should have that Porsche. Why do you have that Porsche? You're not that good. You have a lot of money. You didn't deserve that money. I should have that money. That's envy. So to say jealousy is the wrong translation, I don't think so. It's think of mine. But I think the nuance there is envy. I want something you've got. Whereas a jealous husband doesn't want another wife, he just doesn't want anybody looking at his, and he doesn't want her looking at anybody else, right? Jealous husband. So, that's envy. So we have craving, hostility, delusion, envy, and then pride. And pride is simply that sense, uh, it's, it's called in Tibetan, nagyal, nagyal. Literally, it's I win. I win. <laughs> Which means, who's better, me or Robert? I win. Now I'm taller. I'm, I'm, I'm up on the Dharma throne. You're way down there. I win. Because I'm looking down on him. You know? So I win. The sense of being superior. Not just that I speak better Tibetan. I do. No, I'm not talking about Tibetan skills. I'm talking about, you know, me. I'm better than somebody, anybody. That's pride. That's the mental affliction of pride. Or the poison. So, so we just see it's a little bit longer list. Five poisons. And we suffer, because, we suffer because of them. They're all mental afflictions. And they're called mental afflictions because they afflict us. They afflict us. Not that they feel bad, necessarily. Not that they feel bad. Because attachment, sometimes you experience attachment. It feels good. You like it. You really crave something. You desire something. You possess something. You've got it. Now you're holding on to it. You're cherishing it. You really like it. Like that. It feels really good. It's attachment then why call it a mental affliction? Because it's harming your mind. It's harming your mind. It's disrupting equilibrium with the mind. It's throwing toxins into the mind. That's why. Not that it feels bad. Delusion doesn't feel bad. It just feels dopey or confused. You know. So they afflict, they harm. They harm. Where I'm going that, I don't want to linger here too long, I'm going to go right to it. So this is how they manifest. As, but where are they coming from? It's so interesting in the Shravakayana. These, these afflictions are all recognized, and their afflictive nature is recognized completely. And so what happens when, while you're still alive, you become an arhat? What happens to, the, to those mental afflictions? Right? And their propensities, the seeds, the seeds for those, for those, for those mental afflictions. The Tibetan word is, the Tibetan is sapin, or the Sanskrit bija. If you have a seed of anger, if you're in your mind stream, you're holding a seed of anger. This means that if you encounter the appropriate circumstances, that seed will be germinated. Right? So if you have the seeds of anger, but you're just surrounded by pleasant people, and they all respect you and love you, and they're courteous at all times, and so forth, and they protect you from harm and protect you from anybody who might think ill of you and so forth, then you could cruise through life and never have any anger at all. You know, months could go by. And no anger, because, you know, like if you're, a, if you're an aristocrat, and you have a whole bunch of servants, and their one job is to keep you happy at all times, you know, then you might just feel, life is good. I don't have any anger. In my world, everything's fine. Until you step outside of your mansion, and then somebody treats you in a rude way. And you haven't expected, but I've, you thought you were free of anger, until suddenly there's a catalyst for it, and the seed is germinated, and then you get angry. Okay? And that goes for jealousy and everything else. So what about this arhat? When, the arhat, when a person achieves arhatship, let's say while still alive, then the manifest mental afflictions, the whole array of them, 
coarse and subtle mental afflictions, they're all terminated, and the seeds are all terminated. Which is to say, if you're an arhat, nothing can happen to you. Not in terms of what comes to mind, not in terms of anything coming from other people or the environment. Nothing can happen to you that arouses any mental affliction. It doesn't matter whether you're tortured, or whether you're seduced by the most beautiful woman or car or whatever it may be. You're just immune, completely immune. Nothing can disturb your mind. Nothing can arouse any mental affliction. doesn't matter what it is. You know, even if the host of Maras assaulted you, they couldn't, they couldn't bring out a flutter. No perturbation of mental afflictions. Right? And so in the, in the Shravagayana, what's, what's said to have happened to them? Well, they're gone. They're, ex- they're extinguished. They're gone. They used to be there, and now they aren't. They become nothing, right? Just like the five skandhas, or let's say the mental continuum and arhat at death. What happens to perception and mental, mental formations and consciousness, desires and so forth and so on? Well, they're just cut. They're just terminated. They just become nothing. They're gone. They're nowhere to be found. Finito, right? That's it. I mean, it's terminated. So something was existent, now no longer does at all. Okay? So it would kind of like, in terms of modern physics, might say, well, then you violated the principle of conservation of consciousness. They don't have that, but you know, it would really, there was something there, and it didn't transform into something else. It just became nothing. It didn't turn into loving kindness or some virtue or into some neutral mental factor. It became non-existent. All right? And that's what happens to the, all the mental, mental formations of an arhat at death. They just stop. Terminated, finito, nothing, right? But now let's go directly to Dzogchen. No, let's linger. This is important. Vajrayana. Got the same five mental afflictions, right? Same five mental afflictions. But now you're doing this purification, dissolving all mundane appearances, your mundane sense of identity into emptiness, non-duality of emptiness and dharmakaya. Out of dharmakaya you're rising with pure vision, divine pride, identifying yourself with the deity, but now, from that perspective, now you're maintaining pure vision by the power of imagination and divine pride, where you're not only viewing yourself as a deity, but also, let's say, the, the circle of your Dharma friends within the mandala, you're viewing all of them as viras and akinis, all the males as being enlightened male emanations, all the females as being enlightened female emanations. Pure vision, right? No, no sentient beings. This is pure vision, all the way pure vision. And that goes for the inanimate environment as well. And so there you are maintaining this pure vision suffused with the awareness of emptiness. So it's not idolatry or just make-believe or pretending and so forth. But now in the midst of that, uh, you're still, you know, for everybody else, you're still on this planet where there are rude people and muggers and thieves and bandits and cheaters and everything else. And so it could happen that as you're just walking about town, maintaining your stage of generation practice, that some mental affliction comes up. Craving, hostility, whatever. Why not? You're not, you're not free yet. You're still a sentient being. But now you're viewing that by the power of imagination as being empty of inherent nature as a mental affliction, empty of inherent nature as a, as a poison of the mind. It's only by the power of conceptual designation that it arises as a poison. You're withdrawing that. And now by the power of your imagination, whatever mental affliction arises, you're seeing it as the corresponding facet of primordial consciousness. So, this was all triggered by a line, line here, this natural liberation of delusion, moha, delusion. There it is, one of the five poisons. Transmute it. Transmute it. Seeing its empty nature as a mental affliction, stage of generation, and then by your power of your imagination, you view it as primordial consciousness of the absolute space of phenomena. Primordial consciousness of Dhammadhatu. Delusion manifesting as the primordial consciousness of ultimate reality. Dhammadhatu. Right? That's, how it gets tr- that's what it transmutes to. Right? On another occasion, let's say hostility. Hostility, anger, hatred arises. You transmute that by the power of imagination, seeing its emptiness as a mental affliction, just like your emptiness as a sentient being, and now replaced with pure vision, you see this anger, the mental affliction of anger, not as mental affliction of anger, but rather as mirror-like primordial consciousness. Mirror-like. Right? 
by the way, the chakras are for the first one is up in the crown chakra. For the mirror like it's a heart chakra. That one's white. This one's deep blue. Second one's deep blue. Indigo. Imagine craving, craving, attachment, desire, lust, greed, any of that family arising. Seeing as emptiness as a mental affliction, seeing it arises as primordial consciousness of discernment. Discernment. The color is red and it's at the throat chakra. Amitabha. First one was Bairocha on, on the crown. The one at the heart is Akshobhya. Five, five Buddha families. Imagine it's pride. Pride comes up, the sense of being superior, something special, something just that, it's obvious. Transmute that to the primordial consciousness of equality. Quality. Remember equality? Equanimity? Remember that? That one. Golden at your navel chakra. Ratnasambhava. And then imagine envy arises. Maybe it's envious for some great lama with all of his, with all of her admirers and devotions and dharma centers and respect and so forth. Why does she have so many? I don't have so many. I should have more. She should have less. Okay, envy. Envy for anything. A lama, the person riding a, riding a good sports car, having a great yacht, whatever it may be. Better looks. <laughs> have to get over that one. But in any case, envy arises. That's the all-accomplishing. All-accomplishing primordial consciousness, green, amoga siddhi. The uh, secret, secret chakra. Base chakra. So by the power of imagination, you transmute each of those five, so you're not trying to exterminate them. You're not trying to terminate them, extinguish them. But rather, see where they come from. Because that, take the final one, the envy. Where is it stemming from? Is it stemming... Is it, is it a mental affliction all the way down? The answer is no. It's manifesting as mental affliction. It, it can cause people to kill other people and so on. But if you trace it back to its source then you trace it right back to primordial consciousness and to a facet, one of the five facets of primordial consciousness, all accomplishing, all accomplishing primordial consciousness. And that goes for the other four. Trace them back. That is, without entering into dualistic grasping, without reifying, without seeing them with ordinary vision, seeing them with pure vision, and then tracing them back to their source, and they're sublimated, they're transmuted, and they're brought right back to their source. And rather than impeding you, this is the great power of Adriana, rather than the mental afflictions impeding you, blocking you on the path to awakening, you take the energy of them and you let that hurl you to enlightenment. Okay? A nice image is like, sometimes I think, and I know it happens in, in uh, astrophysics, they'll shoot a, like a satellite towards the sun, and it has a slingshot effect. If you, sh it, you shoot it towards the sun, it gets caught in the gravitational field, and it goes around the other side. It kind of slings it around the far side. You take the energy of that, that torque, that space-time curvature, and, send it, and then it propels it by sending it into it, and then it lops off. So it's kind of like taking the gravitational field of mental affliction, but rather than being sucked into it, be really skillful, and take that energy and let it hurl you along the path to liberation. That's how you take three countless eons and transform it into a, a lifetime or a few. To block, consider how much momentum we have behind our mental afflictions. How many lifetimes of just the habituation, the force, the momentum of these five. I mean, it has to be just inconceivable. And to have to chisel away at that, piece by piece, chip by chip, could take three countless eons. But you can take the energy of that, and like a, like a martial arts, like, a, like judo, take the opponent's strength and then turn that to your advantage. Ah, very cool. That's Vajrayana. P power of imagination. Realization of emptiness, motivation, bodhicitta, and then power of imagination. Right? But we're Dzogchen territory here. And in Dzogchen, you're not imagining. It's not juma. It's not contrived. It's not fabricated. You're not modifying. You're not trying to fix things but rather your release of grasping is so deep that when these mental afflictions come up, 
They're coming up, number one, orphaned. You're not identifying with them as my mental affliction. Number two, you're not reifying them. Number three, you're viewing them more and more deeply from the perspective of rikpa. And from the perspective of rikpa, there are no mental afflictions. What appears to the ordinary mind is a mental affliction. You are simply naturally seeing as facets, displays of primordial consciousness. You don't have to fix them. They're releasing themselves. And you don't even have to fix them, modify them, transmute them, or sublimate them with the power of imagination. It's really quite extraordinary. So that's all a big commentary on this one phrase, natural liberation of delusion, the first four words on page 162. So I shall meditate on the clear light. Okay, first of all, meditate on the clear light. Well, you're not looking at the clear light as an object. You are cultivating a realization of clear light, such that you're viewing reality from the perspective of clear light, which, of course, is rikpa. And by viewing delusion from the perspective of rikpa, then delusion releases itself. And it releases itself as primordial consciousness of dhammadhatu. So there is your motivation, but then we follow the motivation with supplication, which we've done before, haven't we? Pray, for the sake of all sentient beings throughout space, bless me, that delusion may arise as the clear light, that delusion may release itself and manifest as primordial consciousness. Bless me that I may apprehend the clear light. Okay, now this is nighttime dream yoga. Then you lie down on the sleeping lying posture with your head pointing north. We've covered that already. Slightly hold your breath, curve your neck, and gaze steadily upwards. So just a little bit like that. Just a little bit. And then gaze upwards with your eyes. Focus your attention clearly and vividly on a, on a, vividly on a bindu having the aspect of white light at your heart. So it's the same thing. You're releasing your visual awareness into space above. We've done this before, actually. But now your mental awareness coming down here to the heart. But this time you see it's not a black bindu, which is, you know, if you're having insomnia and so forth. You are going to the heart. Well, now you know exactly why, right? Why you're going to the heart and not the throat chakra. Why, why would that be, Marta? Why are you throwing, focusing on the heart chakra here? That's true. And what, what else would you say, Amy? Why are you focusing on the heart chakra here? Say again? Dream? Dreamless sleep. That's exactly right. Yeah, you're right also, but this is precisely right. Because you're now really now not seeking to transmute or use as your vehicle, your platform dreaming, but rather you're going to be now transmuting or taking as your platform your vehicle, dreamless sleep. And then, of course, for that, the correlated energies are converging in the heart chakra. But now you're not bringing in darkness, so you can just fall asleep. A dark bindu, you're bringing in a white bindu. Brilliant, radiant white. Why? You want to bring all the clarity into deep sleep you possibly can. So this is not a practice to counteract insomnia. Okay. So focus your attention clearly, vividly on a bindu having an aspect of white light at your heart. Well, we've certainly done that a lot over the last few weeks. With clear, vivid awareness in the nature of light, fall asleep. Okay, now you're going to see that's going to be subtle. That's going to be subtle. To do that and still fall asleep? Fine touch. Which means those of you who have not learned how to relax yet, get cracking. <laughs> Try harder. You know? Grit your jaw on your fist and make a strong determination. I'm really going to relax now. <laughs> Heavens to Betsy. Or if that doesn't work, find another way to relax. But one way, you really have to relax, you know, because otherwise you'll never do this. So with clear, vivid, luminous awareness in the nature of, nature of light, fall asleep, and in the dream state, the dream state, the clear light will appear like the essence of limpid space, free and empty, free of the intellect. Okay? He's calling it dream state, but, you, but in the dream state, one can imagine, okay, you're in the dream state, but what are you going to do? you're going to dissolve that dream state right into dreamless sleep. And that's where you're going to see the clear light. Okay? 
So in the dream state, the clear light, rikpa, will appear like the essence of lucid. It says here, limpid, lucid is much better. Like the essence of lucid space, clear and empty, luminous and empty would be better, free of the intellect, transcending all conceptualization. Now, I haven't read much of Gautra Rinpoche's commentary because you can read it as well as I, but I'm going to read this one, just this one. If you have already accomplished shamatha and vipassana, you may now be able to apprehend the clear light through such practice. However, if you lack that basis of experience in shamatha and vipassana, then success in this practice is doubtful. <laughs> All right? That's the, that's the warning on the label. You know, this, this will work, but oh, by the way, fly, you have achieved shamatha and vipassana, haven't you? Then you haven't. What, what the heck are you doing up here? <laughs> How do you get into this room? <laughs> I thought this was, you know, invitation only. <laughs> so it really is a reminder, you know, really a reminder. Keep coming back. Coming back to shamatha vipassana you know, until you achieve it. And between the two, one does precede the other. They're both symbiotic, they both help each other, but there's just no question about it. Shamatha is the foundation of Vipassana. Vipassana is not the foundation for Shamatha. And both of them are the, are the foundation for Dream Yoga. And Dream Yoga is not the foundation for Shamatha or Vipassana. Okay? There is something of a sequence here. It's called the path. So, let's read a little bit more. So there's the practice. It's really simple. And now, again, just to reiterate, because this is... This, I'm going to reiterate until you simply totally know it. According to Garabdurje, Prahivajra, the first teacher of Dzogchen in our historical era, uh, when you come to this phase of tekchur, the cutting through, cutting through, what explicitly, I'm going to ask you because I have said this at least once or twice, what are you cutting through? You know what you're cutting through to, and that's Rigpa, of course. What are you cutting through, Isabel? Substrate. Substrate, substrate consciousness. Yes, that's exactly right. Not your coarse mind, not your dreaming mind, not your dreamless sleep. It's your cutting through your substrate, substrate consciousness. Now, having said that, it's really the substrate consciousness that you're cutting through because what you're cutting through to is not realization of emptiness. You, you don't, they don't use that word, tekchu, to realize emptiness. No, that's what vipassana is for. Vipassana, vipassana, insight, special insight to cut through, to shatter, to melt away all reification and to realize the emptiness of all phenomena, right? But now, and that of course you may be realizing by the way of vipassana that is penetrating, sometimes called penetrating insight, penetrating insight, penetrating through this calcified reification, substantiation, hardening, crystallization, my mind. We do it. We do it so easily. When people, even when you're reporting to me on your weekly experience, some of you say, ah, oh, this week my mind's been really scattered. This week my mind's been really dull. This week my mind was... My mind. Like, when you talk that way, I want to say, you just take that mind out and punch it. <laughs> you know? Or getting on Jai oh, I'll never forget this. He taught us Bodhicharvita. Taught us the whole text. Brilliant. I'd never heard such teaching. He got his Lamrim, and then a guy to the Bodhisattva Web. And this was all under direct direction, explicit direction of his holiness. But he taught us this magnificent text, and he taught it magnificently. I'm not, I'm not laying on, he just did. He's a, he was a superb teacher, and so full of enthusiasm, joy, and inexhaustible. You couldn't ask him a question about Dharma that he wouldn't have an answer for. I never saw it happen. I tried. I wasn't trying to test him, but he came back every time. But he taught us this whole text, you know, start to finish. Synthesis of so many of the great Mahayana sutras, the whole Bodhisattva way of life in the palm of your hand, you know. And he said, all right, now practice this. And if you practice this, and you don't find that your mental afflictions are subsiding, and the six perfections are being cultivated, if you find that doesn't happen, well then take your mind out and hit it with a rock. I really like that. He's a comp this is this is Kampa talk. That's what compas would do. You know, compass. If you're from Hwazi, you might say, take your mind out and try to bribe it. 
or, I don't know, something else, or sweet talk it, or take it out to dinner, make friends with it. But the combos say, take it out and hit it with a rock. <laughs> if in doubt, hit it twice. <laughs> you know? They're tough, those compas. You know, you don't mess around with compas. Go to Plaza, you see the compas. The, the, the compa man-man there. They're suave. They, I mean, they're so cool. They got the long hair. They have, they have these long hair braided, and they got these red ribbons in it. For most men, you look like, you know, effeminate. Nobody looks at a kamba and thinks, oh, you look effeminate. If you said it, it'd probably kill you. But they don't, you know. It's just kind of like, I'm cool, and I know it. I'm a kamba. You want to see my horse? <laughs> right? Really. They are so cool. And they swagger. And they've got their sword. They've got their dagger. Don't mess with a kampa. Steer clear. So they took all that energy of being kampa for centuries. And they transmuted it. So many of them. Not all of them. But so many of them. They transmuted that into dharma. So you look at the great geishas, the great kempos and so forth, who trained in central Tibet. The great ones who really apply themselves like dynamos to study, to practice, to meditation, almost all of them come from Kam or Amdo. Hardly any of them come from central Tibet. I don't mean to put down central Tibet. But it was a bit easier for them. They could go home on weekends. Mom would give them a really nice meal. Whereas Geshe Rapten, you know, he hiked. Now he took his horse. It was two months to go from his homeland, his, his dad's ranch, to Lhasa. By the time he got there, his horse was so wasted he couldn't get anything for it. It was a tough, two, two months, two months on horseback, three months on foot. And then once he was there in Lhasa, um, I think he saw his dad once in his lifetime after that. But it was so far away, he, he's now cut, there's no supply line. Dad can't take care of you. What's he going to do? Send food every two weeks on a caravan? There aren't caravans every two weeks. So he's on his own. He got to Lhasa, you're on your own, kid. You know, so they go through, through years of quasi-starvation. You know, because Lhasa is not just teeming with people just all ready to be full benefactors for monks and so forth. And so he commented when he told me his life story. He said, oh, he got TB. He got thin. He got emaciated. He, it was really, and he worked so hard. So unbelievably hard. When I, he was telling me his life story, I was just like, how can anybody be that dedicated? Really awe-inspiring. Truly awe-inspiring. And then he said, when he was in these tough years, like the first eight years or so, no benefactor, hardly any food, but you're studying and practicing and debating and memorizing text unbelievably. And uh, he said, sometimes the thought would arise, you know, all I have to do is go out to, the, to town as a monk and say, you know, folks, I, I'll read some sutras for you, I'll do some puja. And the, and the Tibetans are incredibly devoted, devout, and if a monk says, oh, would you like me to do some long life prayers for your family, or want me to do some pujas for you, or want me to read some sutras, you can collect merit, there's no question. Even though there are thousands of monks there, 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 there are thousands of lay people who would really like to host a monk who do pujas for them. You know? So he knew he could do that and get a good meal and probably a little, you know, little bit of offering at the, at the end. So he could live a much easier life. You know, weekends off, visiting homes and doing pujas for people and having, a nice, having their food and so forth and then coming back. And he thought about that and he said, well, if, if I wanted to do that, then there was no reason to come here. If I wanted to come for an easy life, I could stay at home. He had a great life there. Whole ranch, yaks, the whole thing, that loving father. He had it set. He had the good life. If I want an easy life, I could stay at home. So shut up and bear it. He got TB. And his, and his guru told him, there was a Hayagriva, a very favorite, famous Hayagriva statue there in Sada Monastery. And his guru told him, circumambulate that, that statue 100,000 times. Not a statue, but you know, with devotion, with reverence. Circumambulate the Hayagriva 100,000 times. And he did. Because they had tremendous guru devotion. And sometimes he was so weak, though, that he would crawl. By the time he's finished, his TB was gone. And we know that not by hearsay. Years later, he was in Switzerland. 
And the doctor, when you're in Switzerland, you get a complete checkup, right? And the doctor checked him up. And he said, you used to have TB. You used to have TB, but um, it cured itself. So, so that was kind of a long tangent, but I think not irrelevant. So, a person of superior faculties is the individual who now nakedly identifies pristine awareness just by doing that practice. The present realization in, the lucid, in lucid dream sleep. It's interesting, because the word really should be lucid. And that's what it's called. The present realization of pristine awareness in lucid dream sleep is called the clear light. The clear light of the initial transitional process occurring at the verge of death appears to all sentient beings from aphids on up. That is, when any sentient being dies and you're going through the dying process, then following the blackout phase, then the clear light of death appears. You're an animal, whatever you are. When you're just coming to the very culmination, then clear light of death naturally manifests. There's a little facsimile of that when you're falling asleep, clear light of sleep. Similar process. Not the same, but comparable. So this is the initial transitional process. At that time, it will be identified like a child crawling onto its mother's lap. So I think I've given that, explained that metaphor already. Yeah. The, the child clear light being whatever realization of clear light you've cultivated, realized while you were alive, and the mother clear light is the clear light of death that arises spontaneously. So your older recollection, your older realization then has this recognition. This is what you've realized all along. So it's like the child crawling onto its mother's lap. That union of what you had realized with what you're now realizing, that which is given to you for free, is the mother clear light. And there is no doubt that in a single instant the contemplation of the Dharmakaya will manifest. So you realize clear light of death, which is Rikpa, which is Dharmakaya. Hence, this alone is the most crucial of the six transitional processes. This realization of clear light of death, the most crucial one. That's the one that was Geshe Zerpa would have been dwelling in, Geshe Chudan was dwelling in, the, um, the, the Sangyung Jamo of the Dujum Rinpoche she was dwelling in. It's what they're all dwelling in. Genlam Rinpoche was dwelling in. When they're abiding in Tukdam, all metabolic signs have ceased and their body is not decomposing, that's what they're remaining in. Okay? They're, they're resting in Rikpa. To identify this, to identify this pristine awareness, it is extremely important that you identify the, the awareness of the transitional process of living. Okay, now we already did that, right? Remember? Searching for the mind and then identifying awareness. Well, that's identifying pristine awareness. While you're alive, you're well, get some taste, cultivate that child clear light so that the, when the mother clear light arises spontaneously, there's that recognition and then the two fuse. Okay? I don't know if I gave this analogy before, but it's very nice. If you had a, um, I think I'm quite sure I did, so I'll be, keep it real short and then you just tell me. But if you had a friend that you know a long, long time ago and then didn't see for decades and then you bump into that person, you look and then, ah, I know you. Yeah, did I give that before? Yeah, that's it. It's just like that. I had that experience just recently. I was in England, and the, 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 I was friends with, with Gavin and his, wife Kil- and his wife Jackie. We knew each other back in the early 70s. And then I hadn't seen Jackie for maybe 30 years. And when I was there in the south of England, Gavin was off translating someplace, so I didn't get in to see him that time, but Jackie was there. And I was, I was at a conference, and she said, Alan, let's get together. And I said, absolutely, sure. And so she, she learned, because I was right in her neighborhood. But I hadn't seen her for 30 years. And people do change. Other people, anyway. You know. Okay. I wasn't quite sure what she looked like or whether I'd recommend... Because you know, some people change a lot. And so I was out there waiting in the area where we were planning to meet, and I saw this woman about my age, and I walked up her into her. Excuse me, but are you Jackie? She said, no. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and I was kind of keeping my eyes open, but didn't know really whether I'd recognize her or not. I think I asked two women, are you, are you by Jackie Kilty? No? <laughs> Probably this, got the, this American guy's hitting, hitting on all of the elderly ladies here. You know. Are you a friend of mine? Haven't we met someplace before? <laughs> and then when I saw her, I immediately recognized her. There was no question about it. Of course she's older, but yeah, there's no question. I didn't have to ask. So big smile. She recognized me immediately. She said, oh, you've really changed. I think but her eyesight wasn't so good, I think. <laughs> Dream on. This is dream yoga, remember. So, 
to identify this, it is extremely important that you identify the, the pristine awareness of the transitional process of living. Shamadevapashana texture, Shamadevapashana, searching for the mind, identifying pristine awareness. For that realization is crucial for this apprehension of the clear light in the transitional process of dreaming. So if you gain no realization, no taste, no fui, um, no experience at all while you're awake and meditating, then it's going to be hard to have that realization while you're sleeping. But what you're cutting through, you're cutting through substrate consciousness to rikpa, substrate consciousness to pristine awareness, and you're cutting through the substrate to dhammadhatu. So when you're viewing from the perspective of rikpa, you are viewing dhammadhatu. Instead of just substrate viewing substrate, substrate consciousness, viewing substrate, which is of the nature of ignorance and unawareness, your awareness has slipped into, dissolved into, melted into, or cut through to substrate consciousness, pristine awareness, rikpa. And then from that perspective, in this absence of appearances, well, what you're realizing then is dhammadhatu. And of course that realization is non-dual. So something like that. Good. It's six o'clock or so. Enjoy your dinner, sweet dreams. Try this. If you dare. See you tomorrow morning.